You're listening to the Next Generation Podcast, weekly interviews with the most interesting and successful 20-somethings out there. All right, everyone. On today's episode, we have Kevin Dahlstrom, CEO of Swell. Kevin, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks, guys. Good to be here. I'm excited to chat. Really excited to have you. Uh, I, If people have been listening to the show for a while, they know that like the people that I personally get most excited chatting with are people who are very like multidimensional. They like running businesses. They like, you know, doing cool health things. They like, like epic travel and adventure, which, you know, <laughs> you're going to be going over to Hawaii soon. So that definitely yeah. checks that box. Um, so I'm very excited for this conversation. It's been one that I've been looking forward to for, for quite a bit of time. I think to context set and talk to people about like who they're actually listening to in the beginning here, it always helps to maybe get a quick 30 seconds or 60 seconds on what it is that you're working on and building right now. Um, and I think from my research, Swell, it looks like it's a fintech app, uh, helps people with budgeting and all of that kind of stuff. And I know there's a lot of products out there in the market. Do you want to maybe just take like 30 or 60 seconds to talk about why you found the need to invent Swell and how it's different from some of the other tools like Mint and a few of the other fintech products that maybe people are familiar with? Sure. Yeah. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm excited that you already used the word multidimensional and we're not even like one minute into the podcast because that's something, you know, uh, I write a lot on Twitter and that's probably the number one topic that I write about is, is building a multi multi-dimensional life. I think it's the single most important thing that young people can do. And it's the single biggest mistake that I see a lot of people my age have made where in particular men um, spend way too much effort building a great career, but then they reach a certain point and it's like, now what? Uh, and, and they don't have any other really kind of important aspects of their life. All of their identity is tied up in their career and so on. So that's definitely a topic that I love to talk about. But just in terms of my life, I mean, I, you know, I like to say if, if I've done one thing right, I've done a lot of things wrong, but if I've done one thing right, it's it's that I have always been very uh, deliberate in building a multi, multi-dimensional life. So you mentioned um, I recently founded and I'm, I'm the CEO of a startup called Swell. We're at swellmoney.com. Swell is a new financial app that basically replaces your existing bank. So, you know, if you bank with Wells Fargo or Chase or whatever evil bank you choose, uh, Swell replaces that. Um, but but uh, we do banking in a way that helps you build wealth. So, you know, the, the, the basic formula for anyone, rich or poor, to build wealth is, number one, you spend less than you make. Number two, you reduce bad debt. And bad debt is any debt that's not secured or not backed by an appreciating asset. So a mortgage would be good debt. Credit card debt, generally bad debt. Um, car loans, bad, bad debt, in my opinion. And then third, you you accumulate assets. And so those three things are what Swell is built to help you with. We have a, a digital checking account. We have a line of credit that's lower price than credit cards. And then we have an investment vehicle called Compound that helps you get into exclusive uh, private market, private equity deals like real estate. Um, and so it's been, uh, it's gotten a lot of attention. We have like, five, we're just launching. We have about 5,000 people on our wait list uh, already. To, they're waiting to get the product. So I'd encourage anybody listening to go sign up. So that's one part of my life. Uh, the other part is I am a um, uh, very committed rock climber. I live in Boulder, Colorado, and I probably spend 20 or 30 hours a week uh, climbing. And I have for 20 years it's a huge part of my life. And it's really, uh, when I took up climbing, it really changed a lot. It changed who I am as a person. That's the primary community that I identify with. Uh, I, I actually, my personal identity is probably more wrapped up in climbing than it is in business. And then the third aspect is my family. I've got a wife who I've been married to for 25 years. I've got two teenage daughters. 
And so bet between those three, th three things, you know, swell rock climbing in my family, that's, that's pretty much my life. And because I want to do a good job at all three of those, I pretty much say no to anything that doesn't fit into one of those three buckets. I love, I think one of your, one of your threads wrote, uh, you can't buy, you can't buy a summit. Um, and I was kind of talking about you climbing with, with some other extremely wealthy folks and how it kind of levels a playing field. It's something that, you know, dissociates you with maybe, as you mentioned before, I think a lot of men might just be extremely career driven, very money focused, um, kind of levels that playing field a bit. Was, was there kind of a moment where you realized, Hey, maybe you were going down the route of being really career driven. And then you kind of broke away from that or has this kind of multifaceted part always been a important aspect of your life? Hell yeah. Uh, it's a great question. And there was a very specific moment. Uh, so this would have been like, um, I don't know, like, uh, five years ago, it wasn't that long ago. I had sort of, um, you know, if, if you're a certain type of person, if you're an achiever, sometimes like you're going to find a way to be successful in whatever you do. And sometimes you become literally kind of a victim of your own success. You create this life you never intended to create. And in my case, I had risen through the ranks in the corporate world and I was a, you know, C-level executive at a multi-billion dollar public company making millions of dollars a year. Um, and I remember a very distinct moment though, when I was sitting in a board meeting and I looked around at the 10 other people in that meeting and they were all unhealthy. Most of them I knew were unhappy. They were fabulously rich, um, but there was not a single person I wanted to emulate. And frankly, I was going down that path. And even though I had these other parts of my life, I'd really put too much of my identity in my work. Um, and, and so I did a reboot of my life uh, in my 40s. I did a reboot. And that's when I moved to Boulder. I quit my job, which you know people thought I was crazy at the time for quitting that job, uh, walking away from a huge sum of basically guaranteed money. Um, and but never looked back. And, you know, it's the best decision I ever made because I was able to really recalibrate my life and, and get more balance. And for me, you know, where I live is a hugely important thing. I think it, it's something that most people don't put enough thought into. You know, we put tons of thought into our life partner and like who we choose to spend their life with. Yet the aquarium that we live in, which is your city, people put very little thought into that. And I think it's important to be really deliberate. So that was a big part of it. So long-winded answer to your question, Giovanni, but but that was uh, there was a very clear moment for me when I sort of hit the reboot reboot button on, on my life. I want to I want to dive into both of those in just a minute here because I think the, uh, the like what it's actionable steps to doing a reboot would look like, right? Because I think for yeah. you, you were deep into your career, like had gained a bunch of like status and wealth and things like that, and you know at that point you had a lot to lose um, making this big decision. But I think that there's probably a lot of people listening to this right now who are like in a ton of college debt and have to go in like they're like, you know, 26 years old, working at a job, ton of parental pressure. And this idea of like trying to go and like pay down these uh, college loans, but they still feel stuck. Right. They feel like they can't necessarily reboot because yeah. they have too much to lose. So um, I want to I wrote it down. I want to pause and come back to that in just a second, because I think I would love to maybe learn about like any questions that you ask yourselves or ways of thinking about it that others could take from it. But yeah. I think one thing that you said here that I also kind of like had in my notes was you had a really good, uh, I don't know if it was an article or a thread that I was reading um, titled like how to kick ass at everything. Um, and I, I really like that. And I think, uh, you know, you had like 10 different things there. The biggest one that I personally took away from it was you said, don't take advice from people who aren't where you 
uh, want to be essentially. And I think what I really, really liked about that is like, you're looking around this boardroom and you're saying, do I emulate any of these people's lives? Do I want to be where my boss is, is at in the next five or 10 years? Right. And the answer is no. And I think the, the tough question that I feel like a lot of people don't really stop and maybe think about because like, there's a lot of pressure there is like, if you look at like most people's advice growing up comes from their parents and very rarely do you ever take a minute to stop and think, well, do I want to be like my parents? Uh, and like, and so you're still getting this advice, even into like your mid twenties right. of like, you know, okay. Like my mom and dad said, like, I have to stay at this job because like, you know, they're 30 years into their career and like, they've never done anything themselves either. What, what advice would you have for people to like find God, this sounds meta almost. What advice would you have to find advice from people who are where they are if they don't have access to them in their immediate network and circle? Yeah. Well, you know, um, social media is the best and the worst of this. So in the extreme, the bad example of what you're talking about, where you're like emulating someone you shouldn't would be like, oh, Kim Kardashian does this or that. And, and like, well, you think, like, do you really want to emulate Kim Kardashian? Like most of those people who have, you know, fame and fortune and are super visible, most of them are profoundly miserable. So you have to remember that. Yet we, yet we try to emulate those people. But then on the flip side, and I think Twitter is particularly powerful at this, um, especially in like some of the business communities on Twitter, you find these amazing people who have built incredible lives. And I think it's really important to, if you want to emulate somebody, you don't have necessarily have to have a direct relationship with them, but at least like, you know, um, you know, find someone who you think represents what you want to be. And if you can have a relationship with them, great. But if not, you can still model their behavior, but you really have to examine all parts of their life. And, you know, uh, that, that thread you talked about how to kick ass at everything. I mentioned that specifically, I was really thinking about health, right? I use the example of a doctor, like you go to a doctor and you get advice or he puts you on a prescription and he's some fat guy who's clearly out of shape. Like what? Like, you know, I want to, I want to emulate and I want to take advice from people who are doing what, what I need to do and who are what I want to be. And so I think, again, it doesn't, if you're a young person, it, you know, you may not have access to these guys who are kicking ass at everything. Um, it never hurts to ask if they would consider like mentoring you in some small way, but even if they don't, I think you can just, uh, you can learn by observation. So, and a lot of times these aren't people who are tooting their horns a lot, you know, they're kind of, they're low key crushers. And they're doing cool stuff, but not bragging about it. Yeah. And I think that's super important. I think I, I agree uh, on the low key crusher element of it, right? Because I think people who are sometimes more vocal about their success or like what it is exactly they're doing, there are, there is a lot of things, there are a lot of things that are happening behind the scene that they don't talk about. I think um, particularly the bodybuilding community and like fit, that kind of fitness area is especially yeah. susceptible to that. Uh, I follow this one YouTube account um, more plates, more dates, basically is what it's called. Uh, this guy, Derek, and all he does is basically just takes these bodybuilders and does like a 30 minute deep dive into like, are they using gear? And like, the fact is most people are on something. And so I think, uh, the one caveat there, especially if you're like in one of those types of spaces is like figure out where people are and try to go and emulate that, but also be mindful that like, there's probably a lot of things going on behind the surface that like, unless you can find a way to get direct access to them when asked, like, just know that there might be other parts at play yeah. there. You want to hear a, you want to hear a hot sports opinion on on fitness? I'd love to. So Absolutely. I I have this this thing I often say which is like ripped is not the same as fit. There's mm. a lot of fitness influencers out there who look great in photos, but they're really soft. Like they're actually yeah. not that strong, they're not functionally fit, and you know, I'm 51 years old and a lot of those fitness influencers 
I invite them to come to Boulder and see if they can keep up with me for a day in the mountains. They're just not that fit. They And it's all about vanity for them. So again, maybe if that's your goal, then you should emulate them. But if your goal is to really be fit and healthy over the long term, then a lot of these influencers are the last people you should be listening to. Completely agreed. I feel like uh, for most fitness influencers, just because I'm like, I'm pretty into fitness. And so I've been following this stuff for a while now. What nobody realizes, especially with social media is two things. One, lighting is everything. Like (laughs) you see somebody with eight pack abs, like you can see them out on the beach and they will not have eight pack abs. Like the fact, the fact is it's really hard to do that. The second piece is like specifically for in the men in uh, for men, like when somebody's really shredded and really cut, they're like that for two, maybe three months out of the year, but you yeah. can't hold that year round. Even if you just want to go and eat chicken and broccoli all day long, like most photos and videos, what's, what's messed up about social media is that like, they can go over a 12 month period, but a lot of them came from a three month period. Um, and they're just resurfacing and repurposing that content. So like, I don't know. I, I personally feel like I completely agree with you. Like if you can't touch your toes, you know, run a seven minute mile and, you know, bench 225 or whatever it is like like find what works for you but like i I think you should try to be more going back to it multi-dimensional in your training yeah well even like just functional fitness right like okay great you're strong but what can you actually do like um you know a lot of these guys who are you know ripped and fitness influencers like literally can't throw a football and it's Mm -hmm. like what what's the so they're doing it for vanity great um by the way funny story about what you're talking about about being ripped um Years ago, I, I typically weigh about 195 pounds. And years ago, I got like the worst stomach bug ever. And it lasted like 10 days. And I got down to like high 170. So I lost like over 15 pounds. And I took a picture of myself because I was absolutely shredded. Uh, looked the best I've ever looked, but I was weak AF. Like I couldn't, you know, so I was like the least healthy or strong I had been, but I looked the best. And so that kind of makes your point. Agreed. Yeah. What's, what's crazy too is like you have these jack guys who can't throw a football. Then you have Gio who's not jacked who still can't throw a football. Um, <laughs> anyway, <What was> that? <laughs> besides the point. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with all of that. Um, um, I'm, I'm curious how, to, uh, where, where did climbing kind of integrate? Was this always something you've been into? Because I've gone on and off climbing when, when it works, like when I'm at a gym that's bouldering or yeah. I've done outdoor climbing once or twice and wildly different experience that's- that no one told me from. <laughs> Wait, also, also, as a side note, uh, I'm just thinking about this right now. If you wait, I weigh like 185. You said you're 195. That's pretty big for the climbing community, right? And, I, and I'm not trying to knock anything. I've seen you do the most absurd routes. Uh, yeah. But like, is that something that you have to deal with? I'm a freakishly large climber. You're absolutely okay. right, okay. Connor. Um, I'm on the extreme. Like, I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I'm going to say something, and I'm not. I'm really not trying to toot my own horn, but just giving you a sense of how much of an outlier I am. I, I don't know a single other human being who weighs as much as me and climbs at the level I do. I've literally never met anybody. Um, that's how much of an outlier I am. And I get there through hard work. So it's, there's no secret sauce here. Uh, I'm not particularly genetically gifted, although, I mean, I, I think I was um, uh, I, I was naturally pretty good at climbing. So kind of to your point, Giovanni, that like that that kind of led me to climbing. And I've been climbing like 25 years got introduced in a gym in Dallas, Texas. And for me, it clicked immediately. And it really, like, I like climbing itself, like the act of climbing. It's very like mental and, um, you know, and physical. And it combines like strength, power, endurance, flexibility, balance, all these things. But honestly, the my favorite parts of it are number one, the places it takes you, some of the most beautiful places on earth off the beaten path. And number two, even better is the community. 
climbing tends to attract a certain type of person who I really just align with uh, from an ideology point of view. Um, they tend to be really smart, accomplished people in other areas, um, but they also have like a deep reverence for the outdoors and they tend to live life with a minimalist mindset, which is uh, an important thing for me as well. So it's really everything about it that just drew me in and it climbing sort of like there's a few other sports like surfing sort of this way where like it just tends to over time consume you like it becomes your entire identity. What's, what's nice about it too, is unlike maybe some other sports or hobbies, you really can't focus. Like it is a total disconnect, like specifically surfing, you're out in the water. You don't have your cell phone out there climbing. You're on the wall. You're not thinking about something else, right? Like you kind of have to be there. Otherwise you're, you can get really hurt or like, you know, mess up seriously. Totally. Yeah. No, that's what I love about it is like, I I'm in the midst of, you know, I run a startup right now. So Mm -hmm. I'm actually enduring more stress than I would like from a business standpoint. And climbing is the only thing, I, it really helps me maintain balance because I can completely disconnect for a day or a half a day or whatever. And it is incredibly refreshing. I honestly don't know how, like if someone's running hard in business and doesn't have that outlet, I don't know how they do it, man. I think that's why people have heart attacks and yeah. they have like, they gain weight and all these things. Yeah, I like, I tweaked my back, I want to say like three weeks ago. And so I, uh, there was a one week period where I couldn't lift, I couldn't work out. I just started, <laughs> I just started doing jujitsu and stuff like that now, which is like the most fun thing in the world for me. Um, yeah. But like, I remember texting Gio like two weeks ago after I was one week into this back uh, tweak. And I was like, I can't fathom the idea that this is how people feel all the time if they're not working out. I was like, I've just felt miserable this week. And for no reason other than the fact that like, I haven't been able to sweat for like, you know, a solid like five or six totally. days. You don't want to be around me when I'm sick or injured. Yeah. I'm a horrible person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not fun. How do you um how do you currently manage your time then running a startup? You guys raised a bunch of money, you have yeah. customers, you're just launching right now. What does that yeah. look like from a time management standpoint with still focusing on family and climbing, et cetera? Yeah. So someone recently asked me that exact question, and my answer was twofold. Number one, as I hinted earlier. Um, I think uh, having priorities and saying no is super important. Uh, you know, we we tend to overcommit ourselves and do an okay job at a lot of things. I'd rather do a great job at a few things. So beyond like my business, climbing and family, I pretty much don't do anything. And you know, do I would I like to go out and get beers with my my, my the guys more often? Sure, but I choose to say no to that because it it takes away from those other things. The second part of it is, you know, I'm married and I think one thing that's a huge life hack that is, it's not super, um, super cool or popular to say these days, but my wife and I, we divide and conquer. Like we have a pretty, pretty traditional relationship where um, even when we were poor, even when our net worth was less than zero, we made the hard decision that she was going to stay home and run the house. And I was going to be out there earning dollars. And uh, we've kept that that division of labor the entire 25 years. And we both think we got the better end of the deal. Um, but the reality is I don't have to worry about the home. I don't have to worry about the kids' basic needs being taken care of. I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. And she doesn't have to worry about the bills getting paid or dealing with asshole business people or whatever. Um, and so it works really well. And so I think if you're in a partnership, um, what ha- what I see a lot of young people doing today is they're trying to find someone that is just like them that like we connect at a deep level. And that's, that's important. Like you have to, you have to really connect with somebody, but if you take that too far, you just married your clone. And now <laughs> like 
you're you're sharing every duty and you're you're arguing about it and I just don't think that scales very well. Yeah, I, I feel like that I see, the biggest mistake I see people making my age is like not to turn this into a total dating episode, but like <laughs> I, I personally find that people will go and get into a relationship and do everything like like they're super happy and then they realize that like oh they're actually way more different and in ways that they don't like and then they'll try to go and change and in my opinion like trying to change yourself for a relationship in your early 20s is probably the dumbest thing that you can do i i, yeah. I just think you just should either find a different relationship um yeah. or something like that but yeah well i mean I that's why by the way the I'm a huge fan of the personality typing stuff like the Enneagram in particular, mm. because what you understand is like people are just fundamentally wired differently and you're probably not going to change them at a fundamental level. You're not going to change yourself. at a, Like what, what the Enneagram system talks about that I love is like I'm a type eight, which is called the challenger. And it says you're not going to change who you are. This is how you're wired, but there's a healthy version of it and there's an unhealthy version of it. You need to be the healthier version of it. And you need to help your partner be the healthiest version of whatever they are. My wife is a one. Mm. And, and so, um, so that's really what it's about. And it helps you really understand like, oh, my wife isn't just being difficult. That's just how she's wired. She sees the world differently. But I think that your differences can be your, or really are your strengths, right? Because if you're both strong at the same thing, that's fun in some ways, but it's not as productive. Yeah. On, on the, um, context of the personality test is that something people can go online and just take or oh, yeah. what does it actually look like so i highly recommend it costs 12 dollars. go um go to type in enneagram which is e-n-n-e-a-g-r-a-m and type in it's the ready test r-h-e-t-i it's the official test there's a lot of like unofficial tests that are garbage the official test costs 12 dollars. it takes about 20 30 minutes to take and you'll get more you'll get hundreds or thousands of dollars in insight from that immediately. Uh, and I, I highly the recommend- Enneagram Institute? Yes, exactly. Okay. Uh, so, and you'll learn the whole system and it's like a superpower. You'll be able to identify, oh, Connor is this and here's how I need to interact with him. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, Gio, we, yeah. Gio, we should take that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, it's funny that you bring this up. I had called for someone this morning who mentioned that they make every new hire take an aptitude test. Uh, it's called a criteria corp. And it's quite literally just like, hey, how competent are you essentially not even personality driven, like more competency. And so like, if you're a competent person, you should be passing. Uh, their point was that like every bad hire that they've ever made uh, was when they would make them take this test and they still scored low. And they're like, ah, come on, they can't be low. Like we should just bring them in anyway. Uh, and it ended up just backfiring in their space. So um, it's cool to see like a lot of whether it's like how you work with other people or um, whatever, like whether it's the personality or the competency test popping up more in like day-to-day conversation. I think it, I think it makes a big difference. Yeah. And the other thing is um, just one more thing on relationships. Yeah. We'll get off dating, but um, you know, it's important to remember for young people that it's not your partner's job to make you happy, right? That's your job. You got to be happy on your own and your partner supplements and helps you, helps you grow. I think that's a huge mistake that, that, um, people make. And that's why, by the way, I say it's actually, in my opinion, the decision about where you live is actually more important because where you live does influence your happiness literally on a daily basis. It's your, it's literally your, it's the substrate for your life. Completely agree. I, I grew up in the Northeast. I feel like I've been on dates in Austin. We spent a lot of time in Austin, Texas. I know Gio's there right now, but I'm in New York right now. And the difference in girls between Austin and New York City, like just a dramatically different, uh, I don't know, yeah. personality, the way we click, the way we vibe, all of that stuff. 
Um, I want to bring it back quickly to the idea of this reboot, because um, I think that that's something that will be super actionable if we can get some cool steps there. I think it's such a tough thing because it's so easy. And I have conversations like this with my friends all the time who are not happy with their jobs. And it's very easy sitting in my position um, who like work for myself and, and all of that to just say, oh, you're not happy dude. like quit. Come on. Like you have one life. Like, and it's, it's so easy from the outside. Um, is there anything actionable that you think, whether it's like them asking a question to themselves of how they should reframe it in their mind or uh, like something that they can message their manager or their parents, a conversation they can have on like how to go about like a reboot of their life if they find that they're at the beginning of the wrong path? Yeah. So I'll propose a framework and I think it's a pretty simple but powerful one where think of it as a spectrum and, and you start at one end of the spectrum where you're young you don't have much wealth. Um, you don't have much expertise or authority. And so in that, at that end of the spectrum, you have to do what you have to do to get by, right? So you got to pay the bills. You got to support your family. You're not, you don't have a lot of control over your life, right? But, but the goal is over time, it's not like over all of a sudden, like reach a day and everything changes. It's a spectrum. And over time, the goal is to gain increasing amounts of control over your life, Right. So in the at the end of the day, like in the extreme, which is kind of where I am today, like you have almost complete control over everything you do. That doesn't mean you don't do hard things anymore. Uh, it means you choose the things that you undertake. And so when you're let's let's so let's go back to your, you know, the young people who are at that the left side of that spectrum where they don't have a lot of control, they have to do what they have to do. Just make sure you're doing smart things. So like all the things that that like society tells you to do that sound cool. Um, you know, those usually are not the smart thing, like the, the, the boring, unglamorous things done day after day are how you move across that spectrum. So, you know, when it comes to money, it's like, um, you know, spend less than you make, pack away money, get that debt paid off as soon as possible, like do, live the, do the hard things when it comes to health, like make those deposits every day, like make smart choices. It's all these little bitty choices that individually don't seem like a big deal, but they add up and they compound very quickly. And so I think what the world could use and young people could use a lot more of these days is just discipline. Like have a, and it helps to be disciplined if you actually have a clear goal for where you want to be. So like when it comes to money, I highly recommend checking out Mr. Money Mustache and the 4% rule and the, the FIRE movement, financial independence, retire early. That's a great way to get on a path because really, when you when you when you're on a track to financial independence, that's how you get, uh, that's how you move across that spectrum. That's how you achieve freedom. Uh, I know Gio and I. We this may be a contrary uh, controversial take, but like we definitely should on the fire movement a lot because I think in my mind, we're trying to go and do a lot more than just live off of the four percent a year or whatever. Like that's like that's more of our focus. But I would imagine that given the position that you're in and the type of people that you deal with a lot uh, through swell you probably see a lot of people who are like on the polar opposite. Like they're not trying to go in a mass serious amounts of wealth. They're trying to go and like have enough money to like not have to really worry at the end of the day and live paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, yeah. So to that point, I do think that fire probably serves a very good purpose. Well, there's also a thing that people call, like, cause I'm not interested in living on 25 grand a year, like Mr. Money Mustache right. uh, does, right. but, yeah. but there's also a thing called the fat fire movement. So, fire. you know, yeah. look, when I, I'll tell you my story, like when I discovered the fire principles, I was already a, a multimillionaire, right? And so you could argue that it didn't apply to me because I had such bigger goals. But at the same time, those principles are universal because 
what it helped me realize was, oh, wait a second. Um, if I doubled my net worth, it wouldn't change my life. Like there's nothing I need materially that would change my life in a meaningful way. What would change my life is having complete control over my time. And so I think that's where that's where it's helpful. So the fat fire movement is really about saying, I'm going to live by these same principles, but I'm going to live on half a million a year, right? Instead of 25 grand a year. Uh, and because I want that lifestyle, it, it's different for every person. But for most people in America, um, they would uh, they'd be much happier if they had some form of independence in terms of their time. Uh, uh, that that's like the the big thing people don't. Most people are kind of stuck in the middle where they, they don't have time and they don't have money, right? And so they're on this what I call the hamster wheel, and you got to have a way to exit the hamster wheel, and that's different for everybody. And I think for, for anyone that's interested in the uh, fire fat fire Reddit, I think it's probably the biggest community in terms of. Yeah talking about it and learning about it. Um, I think it's just r slash fat fire and r slash fire. fire maybe. Yep. We'll link to both of them in the show notes, but for anyone curious and wants to dive in. Um, I want to turn this conversation a little bit now into a little bit more money stuff. But before I do, I just have one last question on the health side because I, I really like your takes here. Um, being in, in our 20s right now, both Gio and myself, we, I think, get to still see people who make bad lifestyle disorders uh, bad lifestyle choices, whether it's like not going to the gym, eating like shit, doing whatever you do on the weekends, that kind right. of stuff. And they still get away with it because they just have great genetics. Um, but I would imagine as like, I think, what are you 51, Kevin? Yeah. Um, as you kind of like get older, that stuff catches up. Uh, and I would, I would love to maybe learn the people who are still like really in shape in, in their fifties or like thriving from a health standpoint. Is it, uh, is there anything that maybe sticks out from the obvious stuff of like, well, they just worked out for 30 years, like, uh, that you can maybe give advice on that, uh, yeah. people can start earlier. It's a, well, it is a war of attrition, which like the, the older I get, the fewer people who I would consider to be peers of mine who are, I would consider fit. And like you said, when you're in your twenties, like, it's not just genetics, it's just like youth, right? Your hormones are, are, are good. Like you just have everything going for you. And so you can get away with bad habits, but those definitely start catching up with you in your thirties, especially your forties. And by the time you're 50, like there are people my age who I went to high school with who look like they're 75 years old and are, you know, on death's doorstep. Right. And uh, I would say, you know, the uh, even like our definition of even what fitness is has gotten compromised because like what I would consider fit is uh, like, there's a lot of people who think they're fit, who are maybe my age or in their forties, who I would not consider fit at all. Um, yeah, like, like, like it's, it's funny. Like you even see like the government changing the definition of recession. Whereas like, if you, right. like, I, I feel very, <laughs> very active. Uh, if I think if I look at a BMI scale, I'm considered overweight, um, which like yeah. just makes no sense at all. Yeah. And there's some doctor, uh, one of the big like biohacking or health doctors says like, you know, the goal is not just to be, you know, fit, it's supremely fit because you get all the benefits from being supremely fit. And look, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I am an outlier. I'm going to hold on to that as long as I can. Uh, and I'm still physically performing at the same level or beyond where I did in my twenties. And, you know, we'll see how long that lasts, but it's just like the analogy I like to use, and maybe this will work for your, your listeners is like the, the older you get, the tighter you have to turn the screws, right? So like when you're young, 
you can get away. Like you guys, you you're very active, you work out, but you know, you, you can still get away with going out and drinking once or twice a week or having a cheat day or whatever. Um, the older you get, the more discipline you need. It's like a slow progression. And so you get to the point where you're my age and you have to be, if you want to perform at the highest level, which I do, um, you have to be extremely disciplined. The screws have to be very tight. You have to have everything dialed. You have to be eating right. You have to be doing the right kind of exercise. You have to be doing the body care. You have to be doing like all these things. And I happen to believe that like a lot of things that are popular for fitness and exercise, like I'm going to pick on CrossFit a little bit. You know, I think CrossFit's the original idea behind CrossFit is great. What CrossFit evolved to, in my opinion, is not great, which is basically powerlifting. And powerlifting isn't a sport for a lifetime. Like it's just not. You're going to get injured. It, it's not even going to really make you uh, an all-around fit human being, even though they they bill it as like the fittest man on earth or whatever. Um, so, so I, I think you should find something, preferably outdoor, that um, that results in fitness as a byproduct, right? That you just enjoy doing. And it, it, it makes you extremely fit just by virtue of doing it. That's what, that's what climbing is for me. How would you measure fitness then, right? If you're saying people kind of go around and might not have the actual understanding of what it means to be fit, are you kind of just using that as a combination of cardio fitness, ability to do um, functional movements yeah, and, and kind of so, any specific things that, that come to mind on how you would define someone as, okay, that person's actually fit. Well, so, so the original, like the, who is it like Glassman, the, the original guy behind CrossFit, his original idea was that the idea was that you should be able to throw any activity at these people and they can perform pretty well at it because they've got really good cardio. They're strong. They're flexible. They're fast. They're, they've got good balance. That is like that original idea was great. And go to any CrossFit box now though. And what do you see? It's powerlifting. Like everybody is focused on their PRs for all the major powerlifting uh, exercises. And, and you look at, I always say, you want to see the, the result of an activity, look at the best in that activity. Look, go look at like the Olympic team for climbing and look at their bodies and then go look at the world champion CrossFit athletes and, you know, to ask yourself, which would you rather be? And so, um, it's, so a lot of it geo is like, just like, can you do an, like, like, uh, Connor said earlier, can I, can you run a six or and a half minute mile? If you need to, can you, uh, you know, do all these, uh, you know, are you reasonably strong? Like you don't have to, to deadlift 800 pounds, but are you reasonably strong? But then the, the second piece of it, which I think is important is like, what are you good at? Like if you're, if what you're saying you're good at is lifting weights, that's not really a thing in the real world. Like, you know, uh, unless you're like a beast of burden and I can say like, I'm really good at climbing. And as a result of that, I'm also quite strong. I have really good cardio, so I can do pretty good at lots of other things too. Yeah, I think I think that makes sense. Though the first time I've, I've gone outdoor climbing once, um, and it was it was a really interesting experience because there's no there's no colored rocks you're looking for. I was like, wow, this is a yeah significantly more challenging um, you know adventure than I thought, what? but. I loved it. Underlying what you just said, Gio, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, yeah. the mind-body connection is incredibly important. So uh, there are some activities that have like surfing and others like have an incredible mind-body connection. That's proven in lots of studies to be anti-aging. So when you get to be my age, you're also thinking about how can I stave off the effects of aging? And a lot of it is the mind-body connection. It's not just about being strong. Uh, it's about like having that mind-body connection. I wanted to also touch base on 
you've, you've mentioned how important the city and where you're actually living um, is. And probably the past year, two years, Connor and I have jumped around a lot, done different Airbnbs, traveled yeah. Europe, Mexico, pretty much picked a new city almost every two months, every month. Um, so kind of, you know, also from a personal standpoint, what have you looked at in terms of things you've really tried to find in cities and what other cities have you considered other than maybe uh, Boulder, Colorado, Hawaii yeah. for where you could have seen yourself? Yeah. First of all, I'm kind of envious of you guys that you get to uh, have the freedom to move around and check out all this stuff. One thing I've never gotten to do is spend a lot of time traveling internationally. And I'd, I'd love to do that at some point, but to answer your question, um, I did, a ridiculous amount of thought and research uh, about this topic. I visited a lot of places. I did trial runs in several cities. And um, the honest truth, this is, a, this is a very opinionated thing to say. You know, how, like there's one magazine, I forget which one it is, that always does like the top 10 places to live every year. The truth is um, Boulder would be number one every year, except that they, they can't allow that to happen because like it, it would get pretty boring. Really, if you're an outdoor person, it's Boulder is arguably the best place in the world to live because you've got a major airport 40 minutes away. You've got a major university. You've got a good business scene, but it's a small town and the outdoor access is absolutely unparalleled. Combine it with the weather. So I looked at all these things. I visited a bunch of places. I've been all over in the US. And so for me, especially like being a climber sort of pushes it over the top. And it's just, it's not, it's literally not even close for me. Now, um, I'll give you a, a, a hot, another hot opinion. One city that I think is massively underrated is Las Vegas. I spend a lot of time in Vegas and Vegas isn't what most people think it is. Vegas is world-class for outdoor activities. Within an hour drive of Vegas, you can be up at 12,000 feet of altitude in the mountains, having your really cool weather in the summer. You can be in the desert, like in, in like the, the, the desert towers and the spires of like Zion National Park. Um, you can be on water, you can get to LA in like, you know, three hours and be, be on the beach. So um, Vegas is a, a really, and, and actually a lot of famous climbers are starting to move to Vegas. So Alex Honnold being the most famous of them, uh, he, he moved to Vegas a couple of years ago. Uh, so, so the, you know, those are a couple of cities, but yeah. And, and then the final thing I'd say is a lot of it has to do with your tribe. So, you, you know, it's finding your tribe and your tribe is going to be in a place that is conducive for the things that the tribe likes. And it, so if my tribe is like climbing and outdoor people, they're not going to be in Dallas, Texas, where I spent way too many years living my life. They're going to be in Boulder. They're going to be in, you know, California. They're going to be in Pacific Northwest. Uh, so you know, that's how I think about it. I, I agree with the tribe bit. I also agree with, um, I think you should figure out what you want most out of life right now. Like, so for example, I think right now I'm slowly shifting a little bit of mindset, my mindset for the next like couple, year or so about, I definitely want to go like full work career mode kind of for a little bit. Um, hence the move to New York city. And like, I can't even begin to describe like the amount of people that I've met just being here for the last six weeks or so that yeah. are like all kind of bought in and sold on that mentality. And then when I want to go and change it up and say like, just kind of want to go and surf a little bit, like San Diego's call my name. So uh, that'll, that'll probably be next. Right. Um, I want to, I want to take the next 10 minutes or so to kind of just chat a little bit more money stuff. Cause I think you have probably as, as many health opinions as you have, I got to imagine you have as probably double that, yeah. uh, for like personal finance opinions. So this might be a little bit all over the place in terms of like topics, but it's all kind of around the personal finance bit and how right. people can kind of get ahead a little bit earlier there. Um, the first thing that I've seen that you recommend for a lot of people is 
And I think you do it for yourself too, is kind of checking your net worth on a monthly basis. Um, can you give people a reason like in terms of like why that's important in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, uh, I think the, the common thread here and the reason that this might seem all over the place, but it's really not, is what we're really talking about here is building a great life. And part of building a great life is managing your money well. Part of it is uh, health and fitness. Part of it is relationships. So all the things we've talked about sort of all fit into that same category. But specific to you know tracking your net worth, um, I, I have a uh, I wrote a thread that uh, I think it was called Know Your Number, and you know I think it's really important first of all to um, know what your goal is. So to understand like what it costs to live the lifestyle you want to live, and then like what you're working toward, like what is my financial goal, either near term or long term, and then the way that you track that is with um, by, by looking at your your net worth and what what I it, it's it's actually um, you know, I, I've amassed a bit of wealth and I still don't have a financial uh, advisor or any of that. I do everything myself. And it literally takes like 10 minutes a month because I have a very simple Google spreadsheet that I link to from my thread, uh, on, on the topic that basically just allows me every, every, uh, month to just update all of my accounts. I have like, you know, 20 or 30 different accounts that I, that I update. It doesn't take long and you can see how things are moving. Like, you know, based on how your investments are performing and based on how much you've saved and so on, is your net worth moving? And all I like to see at this point in my life, I get bummed out when I see the number go down. So I like to see the number go up, even if it's just a little bit. And um, and, and that's how you track your, your progress. Because ultimately, the only number that matters is your net worth. Like th that's, you know, kind of the assets that you have. And can I ask two, uh, I guess, two follow-up questions. One, I personally give a lot of friends the advice of, hey, when you're younger, don't track net worth as much. Try to go and track cash flow and how much cash flow you're bringing in uh, earlier on, because I think people get obsessed with the net worth stuff too early and they don't, they don't, aren't actually making enough for it to actually matter. Um, I, I'd be curious to hear your take on that. And then I have a quick follow-up. Well, I think it's both actually. I mean, I think for sure you're right that like, go make a shit. Like my dad, the only piece of good financial advice he ever gave me was he was like, look, Kevin, there's two ways to build wealth. You can either, you know, pinch every penny and over the course of several decades, you can amass some money or you can just go make a shitload of money. And I, <laughs> I kind of chose the latter. Uh, and I think that's kind of what you're talking about. It's like, yeah. yeah, for sure. Like put yourself in a position to have upside. Like, you know, um, don't grind away in a corporate job you hate that doesn't pay very much, you know, forever. That's just not a great life. You look for way, look for opportunities to have upside and and do the work. I love that you're 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 deliberately entering a phase of your life where you're like, I'm going to focus on work and I'm going to surround myself with people who bring energy to that and who are doing cool shit. And and we're gonna and I'm going to do cool shit. Um, but I also think I know a lot of people. So this is hard for people to believe, but when I worked at my last corporate job, I worked with people who made three million dollars a year and didn't save a dime. Because lifestyle creep is for real. Yeah. It happens at all levels. And so you could be making as a young person, let's say you're making 150 grand a year, which would be a pretty good income for a young person. But if you're, um, frankly, if you're living in New York, it's pretty easy to spend that, that amount of money. Yeah, and so to your point that. about cash flow, <laughs> I, I think by, when you said cash flow, I think you meant positive cash flow, like, like yeah. how much positive cash flow are you having? And yeah, the rest, if you got great positive cash flow, if you're investing it wisely, the rest kind of takes care of itself. Yeah, I think well said. And I think- That's my, uh, that's my current concern with moving to New York. 
I think I'd spend yeah, I think, so I think much I, money. I think I wake up every morning and spend ten dollars just to breathe. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, the the other thing that I read from you, I think a little bit over a year ago today, was that back in 2021, around this time of the year, I think you made a comment on Twitter that like around 60% of your net worth is in real estate. Um, Would be curious to know if that allocation remains the same today. And uh, furthermore, like, how do you update that? Because real estate being pretty illiquid, like, is it just based on any latest appraisals that you've gotten on the properties? And then also, is that is that like LP or wholly owned real estate as yeah. well would be my additional follow-up? Great questions. Uh, so that is still true. It's a combination of both, Geo. Uh, most of it, though, is LP. I, mm-hmm. I've done incredibly well. I mean, the past decade has been insane. So I've done incredibly well as an LP in lots of real estate deals. I'm I'm a I'm an owner in in a few, but those are those are the the smaller percentage of it, and um, you know I, I like to say that the illiquidity of real estate is a feature, not a bug. It keeps you from doing stupid things. And I'm a long term investor. And look, here's a sobering statistic: um, the average retail investor, meaning like just the average regular working American, has zero percent of their wealth allocated to private market alternative investments beyond their house. Um, the average high net worth individual has about 5%. The average institutional investor, like the Harvard Endowment Fund, for example, has 40%. Well, the smartest, highest paid people in the world are putting 40% of their capital into alternative private market investments. Maybe that means some, maybe that's something we ought to look at. And so actually that's a big part of like uh, Swell. We have a product called Swell Compound that opens up real estate investing uh, to people that don't that aren't accredited, don't have the hundred thousand dollar minimum to invest, and so on. I've been very lucky in that I've got a lot of connections in that world, and um, I got in at a good time and have done very well. But I think that's going to continue. If you make the right investments, that will that will continue. I'm hugely bullish on. I mean, the the fact is, re- real estate, uh, the the right types of real estate, the right asset classes, the right geographies have massively outperformed the market over the past 10, 20 years. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason to believe that won't continue, especially not to get too nuanced, but um, you know, Geo, since you asked kind of a nuanced question around LP versus GP, um, there's also a nuance to sub-institutional versus institutional, because some people say, well, I can just buy a REIT on the public market or I can invest in whatever. There's a, the juice is all in the sub-institutional real estate market. And so that's that's almost exclusively where where I play. And when would it make sense for somebody who maybe has a little bit of cash set aside that wants to begin investing? How would you not necessarily like like advise them to go one way or the other, but how would you have them think about whether they should just go and try to get exposure to real estate versus something as simple as like an index fund? Like like what would your thought process be there? Yeah, well, it's it's not an either or. So I still, I mean, you don't sure. want a hundred percent of your net worth in real estate necessarily. Um, it's a balance. You know, I am probably more in favor of of real estate and and private equity than 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 most because I've had incredible experience uh, with it. But I think the way to get started, look, when you're young, if you're not an accredited investor, you basically can't play in the private equity world. Period. So, in that case, I recommend what I recommended to one of my good climbing friends. He's a digital nomad, and he has in the past two years acquired three homes directly that he rents out. And so in the past three years, he's amassed something like a million dollars in net worth just by that simple strategy. He's using debt and his high income to amass direct real estate ownership. 
He's not an accredited investor yet. He's close to being. Um, if you are accredited, then you can start investing in pr private equity as an LP. But that's a kind of a it's a tough world to crack because you've got to know what you're doing. It's it's the wild west, and that's really what we're building Swell to help people do is like just cherry pick the best opportunities at the sub institutional level and allow people to invest as little as a thousand bucks. But but so so that I recommend if you're young, build your own real estate empire, man. Like use leverage. The, the thing about real estate is it's the whole system is set up to help you succeed. It's the only financial part of our financial system that's like rigged in your favor. So like you can access cheap debt. You can lever things um, to a pretty high degree, to a sensible degree. You get all these tax advantages. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I think Gio and I are in our fourth storage facility right now. And I think uh, we're trying to slowly start building up that portfolio next Absolutely. year. Absolutely. Uh, definitely. Couldn't agree more. So your um, storage bros. Yeah. Storage bros. Super proud storage bros over here. Um, the, uh, the last one that I personally have on my side, and it's kind of a gimmicky question, but I feel like you probably have a really good opinion here. Um, the biggest mistake that you're seeing people make with money, uh, whether it's at all ages or specifically young people, like, I mean, I can go first. Cause I, I talk about this a lot too, of like, I think people maybe this is kind of goes back to the net worth versus cash flow question. I think that they overthink the investment side of it so much. I have friends who are investing $10,000 across 27 hand-selected stocks and they check it every three days. I'm like, the best case scenario, the best case scenario is you have like a 15% return and then you spend all of this time over $1,500, like make more money. Uh, that's that's my personal like hot take on that, I guess. Uh, I would I'd be curious to hear yours because you see a lot more than I do. I could not agree more. I think trying to be a stock picker is idiotic. Yeah. Uh, let professionals do that. Go focus on making money and keep your life really, really simple. So what I do is, I mean, my, my money is basically allocated into two things, index funds and real estate. The index funds could not be more simple, right? It's just like literally push money into this, you know, this ETF. Um, on the real estate side, though, also like I, um, I, I, I invest as an LP in three to five deals a year that I, you know, so I spend maybe, you know, few hours a month evaluating deals. I actually enjoy that that part of it. And I pick great deals. I invest and those are five to 10 year investments. And so I deploy my capital. It doesn't take a lot of time. Uh, I keep things really, really simple. I think you're onto something with the whole idea of like, when you're young, dude, focus on like the, the key, uh, the key variable in compounding is uh, the amount you start with and the time, right? So, so like, Making a bunch of money when you're 50 isn't nearly as powerful as making a bunch of money when you're younger and putting that to work. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, the like you to your point, the investment side is actually easy. Don't overthink it. Like just do the basics and then go out and focus on making a bunch of money. Yeah. I also like playing games where if I am wrong, people who have way more power and influence than I do are like really screwed. So like what I mean by yeah. that is that like if I basically in my mind, pretty much all that I will put money into if I'm buying public equities is just like an index fund, like yep. usually. Uh, and in my mind, I'm like, if that really shits the bed, we're having way how's bigger a, issues than I'm how's Shopify money. doing, Connor. I don't, yeah. I'm not, I'm not a Shopify. I mean, I was, Anymore. Was, this, this is the four years, three, four years ago, I was, I invested in Shopify and, and maybe made money. Um, but now it's only index funds. And so in my mind, I'm like, if, if the SP S and P goes down, 
30, 40%, we have way bigger issues than uh, right. you know, where I'm at right but now. But I will say um, the S&P has gone down pretty in a pretty huge way. What I love about you know my personal strategy being 60% real estate is I'm actually up through this whole downturn, even, even with the, the losses I took on the... And the, the reason, again, I'm not trying to overly plug real estate, but real estate, you're buying a hard asset. So if you buy in the right geographies and the right asset classes, there is a floor on what's going to happen, especially over the long term. Um, uh, one nuance of my net worth tracking that you guys might appreciate is that I don't mark up my real estate investments at all. So let's say I invest $100,000 in a deal, and that was three years ago. It still sits on my net worth tracker as $100,000 until I cash out. So I get really pleasant surprises when I do cash out because I haven't marked it up. What if what if uh, the property appraises for higher value, keep it low? I only do it like I had one recently that did a refi. So yep. we cashed out and did a refi. I will I'll reset it upon a liquidity event. Okay. Yep. Makes sense. Yeah. But otherwise I don't mark it up. And so what, what that means is you always know that your net worth is probably greater than what your, your spreadsheet shows. And so when the market turns down, like it did recently uh, on the, on the equity side and public equity side, I know that I'm, I'm fine. If not up. I think this was an activity Connor and I did last week, trying to figure out like, how do we, yeah, how do, how do we, we value, value these properties? Um, so well, if you're, if you're the a, owner of the property, it's a little different. I think you need to stay on top of that for a variety of reasons. Yep. As an LP, you don't have to worry so much about that. We, uh, we, we settled at appraisal, bank appraisal letters. Yeah. I think that's a safe bet. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. um, Kevin, this was a fantastic episode. I, I, you named the episode for us here. I'm just going to call it How to Build a Great Life. And before I do wrap up, I want to at least just recommend one book to you and listeners. If you haven't already read it, it's called, it's called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. You ever read it? No, I've never even heard of it. It's by uh, Donald Miller, same guy who wrote like Building a Story Brand and big marketing guy. Um, super cool book. Basically, like I, I'll give you a little bit of the thesis right now. His whole thing is like, if you want to live a good life, here's the contents of what makes a good story. Make sure that you have these elements in your life. Um, and it's pretty cool. So uh, I feel like what we jammed on today between health, business, relationships, and more um, definitely make up a lot of this content. And I appreciate you sharing your time with uh, us and the listeners. I'll check it out. This has been fun, guys. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Kevin. Thanks, Kevin. And, uh, if people want to follow you and uh, what you're working on, working, they can go and check you out. Yeah. Uh, so you can follow me on Twitter at, at camp4, C-A-M-P, the number four, and then check out my company, Swell, at swellmoney.com. Awesome. We'll link to that in the show notes below. Thanks again, Kevin.